Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium is being held May 24th through 26th in Tampa. You get an opportunity, and it's really a unique opportunity for uh, professionals, some of these preeminent scholars in Florida history, to give uh, uh, some of their, their latest research. But you're also hearing from uh, a lot of these up-and-coming uh, scholars, some of the graduate students in Florida universities and universities throughout the country. The theme of the conference is Tides of Change, Diverse Florida Communities and Their Development, and the event includes a tour of historic Ybor City. Um, so we met up with Ybor in uh, Key West and said, hey, there's this place that's up north, they've got a new train system, um, they have a port, I think it would work really well for you. And Ybor agreed, so he came up and he bought 40 acres and started to lay out the plans for his for his cigar town. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the mid-1880s, Henry Plant was extending his railway system into the small pioneer settlement of Tampa, Florida. In addition to making Tampa accessible by rail, Plant expanded the port and built luxury hotels in the area. Around that same time, Vincente Martinez Ebor moved his cigar manufacturing operation from Key West to the Tampa area, establishing Ebor City. Elizabeth McCoy is curator of programs and education for the Ebor City Museum. He was a cigar maker that had a cigar factory in Cuba and then he moved it to Key West and was having some problems with labor unrest and some, some being on a small island type problems. And uh, he had a business partner in New York that was coming down looking for guava, uh, a place to grow guava, and look, came through Florida and, and saw the area in Tampa right by the port and thought that it would work really well for Ebor, though he found it wouldn't really work well for his guava trees at all. Um, so he met up with Ebor in uh, Key West and said, hey, there's this place that's up north, they've got a new train system, um, they have a port, I think it would work really well for you. And Ebor agreed, so he came up and he bought 40 acres and started to lay out the plans for his for his cigar town. As Ebor built his city based around cigar manufacturing, Henry Plant continued developing the Tampa area as well. Plant's Tampa Bay Hotel is now the University of Tampa. Both Plant's and Ebor's entrepreneurial vision helped to establish West Florida as we know it. Ebor brought Spanish and Cuban influences to the area that remain today. Chantel Havia is president of the Ebor City Museum Society. Mr. Ebor actually is from uh, Valencia, Spain. But uh, as Liz mentioned, he was uh, manufacturing cigars in Cuba 
and then Key West, and there was such political unrest that he needed a better place to build his cigars. And so when uh, Gavino Gutierrez brought him to Tampa in uh, 1885, he said, this is the place. He actually, in a period of about one year, uh, he created a grid for this, for Ivor City, which is sort of like a little first plant community. He built housing for the cigar workers and then he brought them from Cuba and Spain and ultimately from a couple of uh, little towns in Sicily. Although Ybor City was primarily populated by Spanish and Cuban cigar workers, it was truly a multi-ethnic community. Elizabeth McCoy and Chantel Havia. There were groups that came from Sicily, um, but there were also small groups from both Germany and from Romania, a Romanian Jew contingency that also found Ybor City um, and contributed to it, not only into the cigar industry, but also um, in the businesses that helped support the city. Because when Ybor City was built, it was basically built in a swamp. Um, so there weren't any uh, you know, other amenities already here. Basically, everything had to be made in order to support this large cigar industry. So all the grocery stores and the clothing shops and, and, and restaurants, all of that had to come from somewhere. Um, and all of these different groups brought interesting elements to that whole picture. One of the interesting things about Ybor City, and very often it's portrayed as a Cuban community, and certainly there were quite a number of Cubans who worked in, who came here and worked in the cigar factories, but at one time there were about 14,000 Spaniards in Tampa by about 1930, and it was the third largest Spanish, not Spanish-speaking, but Spaniards from Spain, population in the United States. So I think sometimes that's not recognized uh, and they contributed uh, to about half the revenues uh, of Tampa at, in the early days of Ybor City. When Stetson Kennedy traveled throughout Florida in the late 1930s and early 1940s collecting oral histories for the WPA, he recorded interviews in Ybor City. In his book, Palmetto Country, Kennedy writes about the very unique community institutions of Ybor City, including mutual aid societies and social clubs. And what made the mutual aid societies so interesting was that they were not only social clubs, so they provided a sort of social outlet and sense of community for the people. Um, they also provided some other vital services, um, banking, um, medical services, um, and this was all done in, in a cooperative setting. Um, so when you paid your dues to be a member of the club, by virtue of doing that, you then were gain, you know, gained access to the hospitals and the pharmacies and the banking facilities. And so you really were given um, entree into some very uh, you know, useful um, amenities that you might not have had access to otherwise. Um, at the time, the hospitals that were associated with um, the, the two major Spanish mutual aid societies, the Centro Asturiano and the Centro Español, um, those two hospitals were deemed the, the most uh, modern and well-equipped of any of the of the hospitals in the whole city. So, and people were able to get their care for a fraction of the cost that they would have at other municipal hospitals. So, it was a pretty interesting setup that they had. And again, like you said, it was really a model for for other societies that sprang up in other more northern cities. We often refer to it as here in Ybor City as cradle to grave service because the minute someone was born into a family, they fell under the plan of the the head of the household, and this was for 25 cents a week, that uh, they would get everything from the, not only the health care, but they had, uh, the Spaniards alone had four cemeteries. The Italians have their own cemeteries where, that's why we call it cradle to grave, you were taken care of. If you lost your job, 
they would come to your rescue to help you with that as well. So it was, uh, it was a great way to not only socialize with your own, but to be cared for in a new land that probably was a little bit inhospitable at first. From the late 1800s through the first three decades of the 20th century, the diverse residents of Ybor City thrived. The cigar industry brought millions of dollars to West Florida annually until Ybor City entered a period of decline in 1930. Elizabeth McCoy. There were a number of factors, just like any other city in the United States. The Great Depression had a huge impact on Ybor City as well. Um, but also at around the same time, um, the cigar industry in Ybor City was a hand-rolling operation. Um, and that was part of its mystique, was that it was this very high-quality tobacco rolled in this very specialized way, um, and it, that commanded a lot of respect. But then the machine age came about, and cigars started to be made by machines much cheaper than they could be done by hand and the cigarette also gained a lot of popularity and so that combined with economic decline led to sort of a decline in people's desire to spend a lot of money on something like a cigar um, and the hand rolling business just sort of tumbled um, and it's once the cigar industry started to fall apart and world wars started to happen <laughs> the second world war in particular um, people start you know People moved out of the, the area when they, the GIs came back. Um, they were given money to move into brand new houses, but that Ybor was an older community at that time. So it just, a confluence of things sort of came together and made it so that the community started to break apart. During the so-called urban renewal of the 1960s, many historic structures in Ybor City were demolished, some to make way for Interstate 4. Many of the city's beautiful brick streets with granite curbs were destroyed by widening. By the 1970s, though, people became more aware of the historic value of Ybor City, and the area entered a renaissance of sorts. One institution that held on through it all is the Columbia Restaurant, which opened in Ybor City in 1905. As Chantal Havia explains, the Columbia is still an anchor for the community. It is indeed. It brings a lot of tourism uh, to Ybor City. Um, we very often, when we are giving museum tours at the Ybor City Museum State Park, well, um, we could spend half our day standing outside saying, the Columbia's that way, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of the must-see and must-visit when you come here. So they're really good about bringing a lot of visitors to Ymir City. Frankly, we also have a lot of very other interesting places that are historic that you can uh, get traditional and typical foods, but that's the iconic one. As historic preservation efforts emerged in the 1970s and 80s, Ybor City was revitalized. As Elizabeth McCoy points out, many of the core elements that make the community unique have remained in place for more than a century. In addition to something like the Columbia, um, a lot of the long-standing institutions, the cultural institutions have remained. Um, many of the mutual aid societies or the social groups that, that developed mutual aid societies are still here, the Centro Suriano. Uh, La Union Martín Maceo, the Italian club, the Cuban club, they're all still here. Um, most of them are in the buildings that they built at the beginning of the last century. Um, so there is a sort of long-standing sense of community um, going on. But as far as the sort of historic preservation movement, as it were, um, yeah, there are every day there are businesses that are moving in and, and rather than bulldozing a building are taking the time and the money to rehabilitate it and, and keep the gem. Um, and we have organizations like the Barrio Latino that step in and make sure that any new construction adheres to a certain look um, and, and helps to really maintain the this, this sort of cityscape 
um, of Ybor City. The Ybor City Museum State Park was established in 1982 to preserve, promote, and celebrate Ybor City heritage. The museum is in an historic building that was originally a bakery. It was the, the La Joven Bakery originally, and now it's referred to as the Frelita Bakery. Um, and it's from 1917, the building is, so it makes it, I believe, the second oldest bakery in Ybor behind La Segunda Central, which is on the other side of Ybor. That one predates it by about two years. Um, but yeah, if you uh, stroll through the museum, the original ovens in the back are still intact, um, so you can get a really good idea of sort of the sense of space of the bakery. And um, the, the ovens themselves are really neat because they accommodated the, the Cuban bread that's typical of Ybor City, which is several feet long. Um, and so the ovens are kind of giant in order to, to make large batches of these, this long loaf of bread. So it's, a, it's an interesting building. And I'm glad that it was able to be preserved again, like many of the buildings in Ybor are. It's preserved and repurposed, but not lost. The exhibits and artifacts on display at the Ybor City Museum focus on the Spanish, Cuban, Italian, Jewish, and German groups who established Ybor City. One area of the museum recreates a cigar factory. That's a really neat area, and people uh, can really get a sense of what it might have been like to be in one of these factories. It's one thing to look at it from the outside, but it's another to look at it from the inside. Um, the rolling floors um, were giant. Hundreds of people sitting shoulder to shoulder, rolling at these long tables. Um, and the recreation that we've done of the rolling floor um, has a couple of the actual rolling tables, um, set in front of a large-scale photograph of a, a, a historic, you know, photograph of the rolling floor, so you can get sort of a sense of scale of what it might have been like to be on that floor. Um, and it also shows the lector stand. Um, hundreds of men sitting in the room all day rolling cigars would get mighty boring. Um, and to to help keep people on task and to keep their minds occupied, um, the lector would sit on a raised dais and would read basically all day. Um, they would read fiction, they would read the newspapers, they would read pamphlets that people were circulating, they would tell stories. Um, so it was really an interesting figure in all of the cigar factories and, and would get people's mouth talking. Like I said, they would talk about politics, they would talk about modern plays, they would read them, uh, you know, popular works of fiction. So uh, it, all of that is represented in that, in that little diorama that we have set up. There's actually a play that's based on a lector in, in Tampa called Anna in the Tropics, and it was an award-winning play um, that was on Broadway. It also came to Tampa uh, to our Performing Arts Center, but it's, it's pretty close to being correct historically. One of the interesting things about that mural to me is that as much as we talk about diversity these days, I think Ybor City was really in the forefront of diversity back in the late 1800s. And, uh, what you see in that mural is you see people very well dressed. Uh, some of them have ties, they have long sleeve white shirts, some of them have hats on. Uh, so that's the first thing you notice is how well these supposedly manufacturers are dressed. And it was way beyond what you would imagine as a manufacturing job. It was a good job and a well-paying job in Tampa. Second thing you'll see is that there are men, women, uh, African uh, Americans, all in the same picture. So you had the diversity of um, all those people. And of course, we know that there were Spaniards, Italians, and Cubans in, in the mix of that. So um, it was interesting that all these people managed to work at very good jobs together and get along and help each other. They all had quotas so that when um, they, when somebody got sick or something, they'd help each other with quotas. The Florida State Lottery is popular today, and many people travel to Tampa to gamble legally at the Hard Rock Casino.
In the first half of the 20th century, illegal gambling was a favorite pastime in Ybor City, particularly through a lottery game called Belita. An exhibit at the Ybor City Museum features an ivory Belita set. Chantal Havia. And we have a newly redesigned um, exhibit that tells how the game of Belita was played. Needless to say, it wasn't um, legal as the lottery is now, so it was uh, something that was played underground and uh, sometimes fixed by the fact that they would uh, either ice one of the balls or they would weight one of the balls so that it would fall to the bottom. Um, it, was, it was an interesting way they selected the balls. They would uh, put them in a burlap sack and tie it up, and then they'd uh, shake it all up, and they'd make this production of throwing it against the wall, and then you know they'd kind of corner of the bag, and that's how they would kind of get the one <laughs> that maybe was kind of fixed. But, uh, you know, we don't talk about that, too. <laughs> also part of the Ybor City Museum State Park Complex is a garden and three casitas, or little houses. Vincente Martinez Ybor made the inexpensive houses available to factory workers, and one is now open to the public. And we have uh, set it up so that it looks as though a cigar worker's family was actually living in it. Um, so it has period-specific furnishings. Um, a children's room that has um, their clothing and toys, um, and then a kitchen area um, that have all been, again, they, they have period artifacts. Um, and when we take people through it, we, we like to point out, you know, a lot, mostly the differences that you would see between now and then. Um, uh, we, it's a good thing for the kids. When, when kids come on field trips, it's interesting for them to try to transport themselves into the past. Um, it's one thing for them to read the panels and hear the history, but it's another when we can put them in a situation where they actually have to compare it to their own lives, and it seems to make a really big impact on them. Elizabeth McCoy is curator of programs and education, and Chantal Havia is president of the Ybor City Museum Society. <laughs> This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and we're getting a preview of the 2012 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium being held in Tampa this week, May 24th through 26th. The event is at the Hyatt Regency Tampa, and each day begins with several concurrent tracks of paper presentations and roundtable discussions, with tours of historic sites and museums each afternoon. The event concludes with a picnic lunch provided by the historic Columbia Restaurant and a walking tour of Ybor City. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. He explains who the conference presenters are. Well, that's what's, what's really great about the, uh, the Florida Historical Society's annual meeting. Uh, you get an opportunity, and it's really a unique opportunity for uh, professionals, some of these preeminent scholars in Florida history, to give uh, uh, some of their, their latest research. But you're also hearing from uh, a lot of these up-and-coming uh, scholars, some of the graduate students in Florida universities and universities throughout the country. Uh, a lot of times you'll, you'll sit in and you'll have 
some of these really great, uh, well-known scholars uh, working, sitting on the same panel and, and speaking and talking about the same subjects with these up-and-coming grad students. So there's a great dynamic there, and, and the Historical Society and the annual meeting really uh, offers this uh, unique opportunity for the, for the two uh, groups to kind of work together. The theme of the 2012 Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium is Tides of Change, Diverse Florida Communities and Their Development. While that theme will be addressed thoroughly at the conference, Ben DiBiase explains that a wide variety of other topics will also be explored. It always has a theme, uh, so we always tend to focus around that theme. Uh, however, Florida history is such a, a dynamic history, and, and the annual meeting really represents that kaleidoscope of that is Florida history. Uh, we've got great sessions that cover uh, Florida and the Civil War, some of these major topics, uh, the Spanish presence and during colonial Florida history. But we also talk about a lot of contemporary issues, so uh, the civil rights movement in Florida history and some of the, the contemporary effects uh, of the civil rights movement, environmentalism uh, in Florida history, the military presence, uh, uh, some of the other uh, demographic uh, uh, areas of, of interest that uh, that we're going to cover. So it really does cover the whole gamut, you know, so it's not just about uh, these sort of um, uh, older topics or just simply about what the uh, this year's theme is. It really tends to, to cover um, um, as much of Florida history as we can get into that three-day event. Other topics to be discussed at the Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium include racial violence in Florida history, the Seminole Indians, Tampa as a seaport, segregated education in Florida, Florida on film, and the 125th anniversary of Eatonville. Ben DiBiase is participating in a roundtable discussion. Sure, I'll be uh, actually sitting on a, a panel discussion about uh, some of the outreach initiatives that uh, uh, some of the um, Florida history organizations and archeo archaeological organizations uh, are, are currently doing. I'll be uh, working with a representative from the Museum of Florida History out of Tallahassee in uh, the Florida Public Archaeology Network, their outreach coordinator. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about what we're doing to uh, help uh, represent these organizations in the classroom and help to get Florida history and, and public archaeology out there. As Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, Ben DiBiase will be working during the conference, but he's hoping to be able to attend some of the presentations. Well, I certainly hope so. In fact, uh, when I was looking through uh, this year's schedule, I, I really want to sit down on every panel if I could, but unfortunately I can't, so I'll be very selective and, and uh, hopefully I'll get to uh, sit in on some of the panels and, and again get an opportunity to, to listen to these these great scholars, but also see what some of the uh, younger grad students are, are working on and uh, get an opportunity to network and talk with a lot of the uh, Florida history, uh, talk with people who are in the Florida history uh, community. After each morning of multiple concurrent sessions of paper presentations and roundtable discussions, participants in the Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium take tours of local museums and historic sites. Barbara West is Associate Director of the Florida Historical Society. We have some wonderful tours planned for our participants this year. Uh, beginning on Thursday, May 24th, we're going to ride the trolley from the Hyatt Hotel over to the Tampa Bay History Center, where we will be uh, touring the museum for a couple of hours. We're going to follow that by an open reception, and then we're going to offer something really special. Uh, it's going to be um, 
sponsored by the Cigar City Brewing Company, and we're going to have a beer tasting. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, at the close of that, we'll ride the trolley back to the hotel, or we'll go on into the other areas of downtown Tampa. After the Friday morning sessions, conference attendees will enjoy more tours. We'll be getting on a, a tour bus, a tour coach, and we'll be going over to the Henry Plant uh, Museum, where we will have a couple of hours to enjoy all of their historical uh, exhibits and displays. After the Henry B. Plant Museum tour, Tampa historian Rodney Kite Powell will lead a tour of historic Davis Island, and local author Della Costa will lead a tour of the Hyde Park community. Barbara West explains that in addition to presentations and tours, the conference features other special events. On Thursday afternoon, we're going to have our annual awards luncheon where we'll be presenting our many awards to uh, the various books and uh, papers that have been judged to be the best uh, for the year, and we'll be honoring those uh, award winners at that luncheon. We'll be following that on Friday night uh, with our banquet and our our keynote speaker on Friday evening is going to be Tina Bukovalis, uh, who will be giving us a wonderful keynote lecture and we'll have a wonderful dinner at the Regency Hyatt Hotel. Each year, the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium is held in a different Florida town. In recent years, the conference has been held in Pensacola, St. Augustine, and Jacksonville. Barbara West says that planning for this week's event in Tampa has been underway for more than a year. We usually start planning for the next year's annual meeting immediately following the close of the current year's uh, meeting. And we start by trying to locate some key people in the area where we'll be visiting. And we have always have a local contact there who helps us coordinate the tours and introduces us to the people who will help us bring together a successful meeting. We spend all year putting this together. Of course, uh, nailing down the hotel is the first decision to be made. And, and our various committees are working on identifying the speakers and the presenters that will be uh, telling us all about the history according to what the topic is for the year. Um, I have a committee that works with me, wonderful volunteers who help us identify possible tour venues and people that can lead those tours for us. It's it's an entire year-long process, and we actually only wrap it up about two weeks before the actual conference. For more information on the 2012 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium and for registration information, visit myfloridahistory.org. The event is being held May 24th through 26th in Tampa. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. In April 1528, a Spanish captain general named Panfilo de Narvaez landed at or near Tampa Bay with 300 men and 40 horses, determined to conquer Florida. Unfortunately for his expedition, he made two major mistakes after the landing. First, 
he instructed the ships bearing all of his food and supplies to sail north along the Gulf shore and to rendezvous with his marching units at a site that he did not identify accurately, with the result that he never saw the ships again. His second mistake, it was when he reached the vicinity of today's Tallahassee. There he so offended the local Appalachian chief that the Spanish encampment was constantly under native attack. Narvaez had barges built and attempted escape westward along the shore. Storms killed most of his men. Only four survivors reached safety in Mexico. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.